We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today is Monday, February the 7th, 2022, and it's a great day to have a day here on the Spurs Up show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. And on today's show, I break down Saturday's game as South Carolina basketball falls yet again to the Tennessee Volunteers by a final score of 81 to 57. Guys, I will give my full takeaways, my thoughts, my reactions, including my biggest takeaway from Saturday. We'll hand out the Shooter Shoot Award, and I'll talk what's next for the Court Cox as well. Also, guys, news and notes to get into, and we got a fantastic conversation, a great throwback interview with former South Carolina right-handed pitcher Blake Cooper as he details his illustrious career in Garnet and Black. Guys, we got a packed show for you here on this Monday, and of course, as always, it's brought to you by our friends over at Upstate Movers Group. Guys, for all your moving needs in the 2022 calendar year, be sure to contact our friends over at Upstate Movers Group. You can find them on social media, at Upstate Movers Group, or of course. If you have any other questions, go to their website, upstatemoversgroup.com. That's upstatemoversgroup.com. Be sure to check them out and tell them Chris from the Spurs Up Show sent you. Let's get it. Lather, rinse, repeat. A tale as old as time and a song as old as rhyme. Here we are yet again on a therapy Monday after watching yet another disappointing performance from Gamecocks basketball, specifically in SEC play. Where do we go from here? What do we do? How do we get better? How do we improve? We'll try to figure that out and solve those answers here on this Monday. Folks, again, happy Monday. Hope you're all doing well. I'm Chris Phillips, your host of the Spurs Up show. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in. We have got a packed show for you here on this Monday as we now just sit, guys, 11 days away 
from opening day, less than two weeks until the Yardcocks take the field. Again, guys, we continue along with the countdown to first pitch. But, of course, on today's show, we are locked in on the court, Cox. Just what happened over the weekend at Colonial Life Arena. Again, guys, appreciate you all tuning in. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. And, again, I do hope the show finds you well. Again, guys, I do want to say this really quickly. You know, it's really awesome. People ask me, you know, how do I like Columbia? How do I like living in Columbia? And one of my favorite things, arguably my favorite thing, is living here, being in this city, being in this community, and truly feeling the love from folks around the city, in the community, and you go out and about, and man, you see people rocking the merch, and, 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 you know, saying what's up and supporting and showing love, whether it be through merch, whether it be through content, whether it be through social media, what have you. I just want to say again, guys, here on this Monday, thank you. I'm truly grateful to each and every single one of you. Again, it was a great weekend for our merchandise side of the business and everything else as well, of course, but really do appreciate it, man. You know, when I go out and about and you guys say what's up or holler or whatever and show your love and support, man, it's just It is a reaffirmation of why we do what we do and to know that people really rock with the brand and the business and the content and everything else to that level to where you guys feel compelled to when you see yours truly out in public or you want to rock the merch out in public, man, it's really, really cool. So again, guys, truly do appreciate it. So happy you guys found find value in what we do. And again, can't wait to keep rocking because again, we've got even more stuff in line. And again, guys, that's where I want to start. We've actually got big announcements for you here on this Monday. If you have not seen it yet, of course, we have been doing the Tin Roof live shows on Wednesdays since middle of last summer. And I'm very happy and proud to say those are going to continue. Those are going nowhere. And again, guys, it's something that I truly do love doing. I mean, it's just awesome. It's a different type of content, getting out and about at Tin Roof at a live venue and having the opportunity to sit on that stage and and chat with you guys and interact with you guys and banter with you guys and drink some beers and just kind of kick your feet up and have a really good time. We're going to continue to do that. Again, I'm very proud and happy to say we're going to continue to do those shows. But now, but now, and this is great news for all parties involved, we have got a new Start time. So officially, guys, before the Tin Roof Live show was down in the Vista from 5 to 7, that show is now being moved back an hour. We will be live from 6 to 8 now instead of 5 to 7. Again, guys, I think you all understand why this is a no-brainer, why this is a great decision um, and a great thing for all of us. Because, again, I I always felt like 5 was... Pretty early, you know, people are just still getting off work or finishing up at work, if you will. And our, our our second hour was much livelier than our first. And so I talked to my good friend, Corey, and the people over at Tin Roof. And, you know, again, it just made sense. So, again, we'll now be live 6 to 8 instead of 5 to 7. Moving forward 6 to 8 out at Tin Roof, of course, the same specials, the same people, the same great time. You can expect all that. But now 6 to 8 instead of 5 to 7. And, again, guys, I cannot tell you how fired up and excited I am for that also in case you missed it the live streams the 10 roof show are officially back available to the masses that was something we put behind the big cock club patreon wall if you will we're going to redistribute those from now on starting this week on twitter facebook youtube all that good stuff twitch you know the drill uh but again that six to eight will be live each and every single wednesday three dollar drafts three dollar rumple fantastic food great people and again always a great time. So again, guys, mark it on your calendar. Six to eight, not five to seven anymore. Six to eight at Tin Roof each and every single Wednesday. Can't wait to see you guys out there. Also, guys, I do want to say thank you to all my Somerville folks, all my low country folks that came out 
for the watch party as the Gamecocks took on the Tennessee Volunteers over the weekend. And we're keeping it rolling, guys. I told you this Carolina Alehouse stuff. And again, hey, we got a ton of new announcements coming, guys. We got tailgates. We got swag giveaways. We got merch giveaways. All kinds of stuff. But I can tell you, locked in, confirmed for this weekend. Watch party for the Gamecocks game against the Georgia Bulldogs this Saturday, February the 12th. And again, this game is at Georgia, but I'm really excited. We have not gone to this Carolina Alehouse location as of yet. This will be our first time. And obviously, it's very close to home, literally and personal for me, because we are going to the other side of the river. We're going to Augusta, Georgia, the Carolina Alehouse location in Augusta, Georgia. And again, guys, as you all know, I am from North Augusta. So to be able to go back home, hang out with family, see old friends, all that good stuff. Again, guys, would love to have you all come out to that. Again, all the details, of course, are on social media. So again, come on out, Carolina Alehouse in Augusta, Georgia. Again, all those details available. Tip-off is at 2. Yours truly will probably get there around 12 or 12.30 or so. And again, going to be one hell of a day because, hey, we've actually got a chance to win that game <laughs> against Georgia. But again, cannot wait to see you guys. Let's paint Augusta garnet and black. And again, like I said, cannot wait to get out there and really, uh, really have a good time. So again, that's Carolina Alehouse, Augusta, this Saturday. Watch party against the Georgia Bulldogs tip-off is at 2 o'clock. And again, guys, all of those details are on social media. Hey, let's go ahead and get into it. Because again, it is Therapy Monday. South kind of falling to the Tennessee Volunteers by a final score of 81-57. to 57. And as I said in the beginning of the show, Taylor's as old as time. Truly, a song as old as rhyme. You know, I had very low expectations going into this game, and I guess it made it easier to deal with because, again, guys, I picked South Carolina to lose the game by 16 points, and you end up losing by 24. I mean, I'll tell you this in pregame. I don't know what drugs the guy was on in Vegas who made that spread seven and a half Tennessee only favored by seven and a half points, but I felt like that was ridiculous from the start. Uh, shout out to the crowd at CLA, by the way. Obviously, I was not there in attendance, but it looked great on TV. You guys sounded loud. I think Gamecock Nation, you know, for the most part, did their part, showed up and showed out. And of course, guys, we urged you all to, to show up to CLA and support Frank Martin and support the boys and all that. Here's the disturbing trend about this season and what really, truly bothers me. Guys, you are four and six in SEC play. What is more discouraging and bothers me even more is this. Five of those six losses have come by double digits or more. You're not just losing, as we said after the Mississippi State game. Folks, when you lose, mwah, chef's kiss. You lose in style. Florida is the only game you've lost by single digits. In SEC play, you lost by eight points. Let's go back through, shall we? You lost to Tennessee by 24. You lost to Mississippi State by 14. You had that nice little three-game winning streak mixed in, but you lost to Arkansas by 16. You lost to uh, Florida by eight. Like I said, you lost to Tennessee the last time by 20. You lost to Auburn by 15. You are getting blown out. You're not even competitive. And I, I don't want to sit here, guys, and continue to just beat a dead horse, beat a dead horse, beat a dead horse. But is there anybody left? Is there anybody right now left that still believes that doing nothing helps the future of South Carolina basketball? Hey, if you don't think maybe it's Frank Martin who should go, 
If you think there's other action that should be taken, fine. That's your right. You can believe that. But to sit here and think nothing can change, nothing should change. You know what will change if you change nothing? Nothing. Nothing. And, you know, people bitch and moan on social media, some do, about my takes about Frank Martin and coaches and, okay, you know, of course that guy wants the coach fired, whatever. And again, I have explained my point over and over again that it's nothing personal. It's a business. We got to do what's best for us. I've explained my angle. But you know what, guys? It's people like me that are continuing to try to inject some passion into the basketball program. Because the program, as I said a couple of weeks ago, and I was right, is dead. It's dead especially to the common fan. It's dead. Listen, we had great memories. We've got great memories of the Final Four. Nobody will ever forget it. But as each day passes, as each game passes, we are getting farther and farther and farther away from that appearance. We're getting farther and farther and farther away from glory. And I see some of you saying, well, what about Gigi Jackson? Do you Guys, I will shit a brick if Gigi Jackson commits to South Carolina. I, I would be utterly shocked. Utterly shocked. As I said before, and I said after the game, I got no ill will or vitriol to Frank Martin. None. None. And is it all Frank Martin's fault? Does South Carolina put the resources it should into men's basketball? I don't know that they do. I don't think it is all Frank Martin's fault. But you can't sit here and say, nothing should change. Oh, let's just keep proceeding as normal. Because as I said last week, guys, and it sounded really harsh, but it's the truth. If we have no greater expectations than what we're seeing on the floor right now, if our goal is only to win one more than we lose, and we're happy and content with that, then shut the program down. Take the resources and put it into the sports that care about winning. Because we still got a long way to go. There's eight SEC games. I mean, the season will be over before you know it. And we'll be left sitting here when the dust settles yet again about how do we proceed about the future of Gamecocks basketball. And you know what? It's good. What I saw on social media this weekend was good. Because I think most folks agree with what needs to happen. But there are those last little bit of people that are like the crazy ex-girlfriend that just will not let the relationship die or whatever crazy toxic person is, whether it's the dude or the girl, they won't let the relationship die, right? They're just clinging, hanging on, hanging on. And you know what's funny? The longer they hang on, the worse they make it. But what we saw on social media this weekend was some of you, I'm not going to name names, but some people freaking out, going ballistic, right? That's good. That's good. That's good. Anger's good. Vitriol is good. Passion is good. It's good. Because we could just sit around and say, yeah, you know what? Ah, we're not supposed to be good in basketball anyways. Whatever. It's all good. You'll get a pass. You get a pass. You get a pass. That's not how positive change. Hey, change hurts. Change hurts sometimes, guys. I get it. I get it. People don't like change. Many folks in life, common folk, they fear change. They don't like it. It's like ripping a Band-Aid off. Nobody wishes ill will on Frank Martin. Nobody dislikes Frank Martin. This is not a Will Muschamp situation. But damn it, we got to have some standards, man. I mean, some of you out there, 
that think Frank should get a pass. Frank should get a pass. I hope you don't get run over like that in real life. Like, my goodness. We should expect more, man. And we're not bad fans for expecting more. And again, you can't clamor to people about show up at the CLA and, you know, we, we showed in the second half when our students show up and they're loud and they're rowdy, you know, it gives your team courage. Gamecock Nation showed up, coach. And not only did you lose, you got your brains beaten again. And, and you knew, you know, sitting, and I, I'll tell you this, playing Tennessee and going to Somerville does not mix for yours truly because we've done two watch parties at the Carolina Alehouse location in Somerville. Both were games against Tennessee and both were blowouts. So I don't think we'll be going back down to the low country to watch the Gamecocks take on the Volunteers. Um, you know, on the floor specifically for the game, because I really don't want to spend the entire show, guys, on the Frank Martin subject, because you guys know how I feel, and that's something we'll talk about all week long. I already know the Daily Crow is going to be insane. The Daily Crow is going to be lit. Can't wait to hear from you guys. But I think we can all agree now, Tennessee Tottenham is a better team than you. I think depth was an issue in that game. And you, you knew, at least I did, or I felt like I did, that you knew it was going to be bad because I felt like we played a great first half, very spirited, played our tails off. Again, I told you guys, this team's not going to quit. That's not how a Frank Martin team is built. We're not going to quit. But, you know, when you're down by four at halftime and you feel, you feel like you played about as well as you could in that first half, you're like, man, it's going to take a miracle. It's going to take a miracle for us to hang around in this one. And again, guys, Tennessee top to bottom, they're just better than you. They got better players. That's it. That's it. That's not a hot take. Uh, that's not a hot take. They got better players. Dominated you across the board. They shot 43% from the field, 52% from three-point range. You shot 32% from the field and 26% from three-point range. They out-rebounded you. They had less turnovers. They had more steals. They shot better from the free throw line. Pure domination. Pure domination across the board. And again, guys, I, I would just say this. Change hurts. Change hurts. It does. And I don't want to be the guy, like I said, all season long, you know, every post-game video and every podcast is fire Frank Martin, fire Frank Martin, fire Frank Martin. But I'm also not going to be mute. I'm not going to just say nothing. Because again, when you say nothing and you do nothing, you know what you get? You get nothing. You get nothing. And guys, I love what I do. I love talking Gamecocks. I love covering the Gamecocks. But you know what? If we're not going to have any more of expectations than what we're seeing, you know, if the administration looks at this season and looks at the, the Frank Martin tenure and says, you know what? We're okay. We're, 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 we're cool with it. We're cool with what's going on. I don't really want to watch, guys. I'd rather just allocate my time, my energy, my resources and covering the women more extensively, to be totally honest with you. And I think that's how fans feel, too. To hell with them. That's how it feels. I mean, we all love our team. Don't get me wrong. But my God, you got to put a product out there. You have to. You got to put a product. Now, as I said after the Kentucky game, or excuse me, after the Tennessee game, wouldn't shock me to see this team turn around and play its, one of its best games and, and beat Kentucky at the CLA somehow. Wouldn't shock me. Because, again, that, that, that is a Frank Martin team. This is a typical Frank Martin team. But, again, what's scary, guys, is this, because we went on a three-game winning streak and we kind of forgot for a week all our deficiencies. We forgot for a week how, you know, we have areas we're not very good in, right? We forgot that for a week, who we were. We forgot who we really are for a week. 
but against teams that are good, I would argue, against teams that are good basketball teams, right? Because who you've beaten is Vandy twice, Georgia, and an A&M team that's mm, not all that great. Again, taking nothing away from the win, but they are what they are. In those six losses, you've lost five of the six by double digits, and they've been blowouts. They've been blowouts. I mean, guys, you lost Mississippi State by 14. That was a 27-point deficit. They've been blowouts. Not even competitive. And my biggest takeaway, guys, is this from that game on Saturday, outside of the future of the program and what needs to happen and, and all that. And I know I'm stating the obvious. But it's just so clear. I mean, if this team, you know, we talk shooter, shoot, all that good stuff. This team's not built to win an offensive shootout, guys. The only way this team can win is to make the game sloppy, make it ugly, play an aggressive style of defense, and hope the other team goes cold from outside. What kind of way to win is that, by the way? What a, what a pitiful, boring brand of basketball. Sorry, guys, the style's outdated. The style doesn't work. What Frank Martin is doing doesn't work. It doesn't. Women lie, men lie. Numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. The stats don't lie. The record doesn't lie. I am pleading with some of you. Please, please let us raise the expectations of this program. And we're not saying make a tournament every year. Nobody in their right mind is saying that. But to be 10 games in a conference play and feel like, well, all postseason hopes are shot. I don't want to be at that point anymore. It's not fun. Nobody enjoys it. We don't want to be finishing in the bottom third of the SEC. The relationship has come to an end, guys. It's come to an end. It's not good for Frank Martin, and it's not good for us. And, guys, as awesome as the Final Four was, and you know what, again, if I've got to be that guy, i got to be the quote-unquote villain to some of you, hey, that's fine. I get paid to do so. I'll continue to do it. Because guess what? People hated me for the Muschamp thing. You know, it's so funny looking now, not to go off on a tangent, but, you know, it's popular to hate Will Muschamp now. You know, oh, I knew all along. Will Muschamp was a slap dick. Like, oh, yeah, fire Muschamp, fire Muschamp. So glad he's gone. Bro, I, 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 I recall a time not long ago when everybody loved Will Muschamp and they hated me. So Gamecock fans, I mean, I respect Gamecock fans' loyalty. Gamecock fans will ride or die for their coach until the second he's not their coach or she is not their coach. And then after that, oh, I knew all along you sucked. Oh, my God. It... I respect it. I respect the loyalty, man. There's some of you on social media I see. You'd jump off a bridge for Frank Martin. You would. And nobody, guys, by the way, nobody wants to be right. Nobody wants to be right in the sense of, oh, fire Frank Martin. He should go. We need, to, we need to change. Nobody wants to be right. We all want to see it turn around under Frank. We all want to see Frank be here for another decade and win accordingly. But you got to call a spade a spade, man. And again, not everybody's geared to do that. Not everybody's built to do that. Not everybody can look at their school in an honest scope and say, you know what? It hurts. Change hurts, but this is what is best. But I'll be that guy. I'm built for it. I'm geared for it. I will be that guy. And again, as I've told you before, I don't come with the same vitriol. I don't come with the same ill intentions. I don't come with the same, you know, almost, almost making it feel like it's personal. Hey, Frank, let's shake hands. Let's let bygones be bygones. 
but what you're doing isn't working well enough at the rate it needs to for you to be employed at the University of South Carolina. We need a breath of fresh air. We need a shot in the arm. We need a change. Damn it, I know the expectations of Gamecocks basketball are low. Pathetically low. They're pathetically low. Call it for what it is. I mean, some of you out there, I think, you know, you, you just, you're just happy if our guys just show up and tie their freaking laces. Oh, good enough for me. We showed up. That's it. That's it. Doesn't matter, how, doesn't matter win or lose. Let's just show up to the floor and have fun and wear the garnet in black and, and raise our hand at the forever to thee. That's it. That's it. That's the expectations for some of you. For some of you. You know how you set standards, guys? This can apply in life, business, relationships, sports. What you allow, what you allow becomes the standard. You're in a relationship and somebody cheats on you and you say, you know what? I'll take you back. Well, you have, you have, you have officially, whether you realize it or not, told the other person they condone that behavior. They're okay with that. They may not like it, but they are going to allow that behavior. Right now, we're allowing what we're seeing. We're getting exactly what we're signed up for. We are. Whether you want to admit it or not, we are. So your standard becomes what you allow. Let's demand more. Let's ask for more. Let's, no, again, let's demand more. Let's demand more. Because personally, I've had enough, man. Again, ugly game Saturday, no question. Uh, dominated top to bottom. Tennessee-style players, everything, just better than you. Just better than you. Where do you go from here? What do you do? What do you do? Because I'm sorry, the whole rah-rah, we'll get them next time, get back to work. It's not good enough anymore, man. It's not good enough anymore. And again, it's not even that you're losing. It is you are getting your butt whooped every time you lose. Something's got to change. All right, guys, let's hand out our Shooter Shoot Award for the game against Tennessee. Our guy, Mr. Stevie, Eric Stevenson, 13 points. Three for seven from the field, three for five on three-point range, and four for four from the free throw line. You, re- you guys realize this guy's only missed one free throw all season. He's like 99%. Dude's like J.J. Redick, like the modern J.J. Redick. So, again, Eric Stevenson, our guy Stevie, winning the Shooters Shoot Award. What's next for Carolina basketball? Gamecocks tomorrow night will take on the Kentucky Wildcats Tuesday February the 8th, guys, another nationally televised game. That was something else that hurt. That game was nationally televised. You got embarrassed on national TV. And you'll have another opportunity tomorrow night. But you better get it figured out quick because Kentucky's good. They've got a fantastic big man whose name slips me right now, but it is going to be one hell of a challenge for you. That is for sure. One hell of a of a challenge. So again, guys, Gamecocks will take on the Kentucky Wildcats t- tomorrow night at the CLA, by the way. So pack the CLA. Yours truly will be in attendance at the CLA. And I will say this. Come on out. Why not? Hey, weird things happen when the Gamecocks play Kentucky at the CLA. Yours truly was there the last time it happened. Jermaine Kusnard, buzzer beater to win the game. Who knows? Who knows? It's a Frank Martin coach team, guys. Really, truly, who knows? Who knows? So. Should be a lot of fun. Again, guys, that's going to do it all for me in regards to the basketball game against Tennessee. Would love to hear you guys' thoughts, your comments, everything else. Hey, I'll ask you guys another question. Am I being too harsh? I, I don't know. I, I want to hear what you guys think. I want. I really want to gauge the temperature of this fan base right now. Are you guys just completely checked out? I see a lot of you on social media saying, Chris, opening day's in 11 days. Who cares? 
Who cares? Have my guy, Tucker Hamilton, shout out Tucker, at the Tin Roof Show. Literally told me, he said, Chris, this is the worst time of year. That two-week period from February the 1st to opening day. He said, you know why it's the worst time of year? Because we're stuck waiting for opening day watching shitty basketball. <laughs> I mean, that, guys, that's, that is a common Gamecock fan right there. And that's really the mood of Gamecock Nation. I, I really think at this point that's the mood of Gamecock Nation. And it's unfortunate. So, we'll see if the boys can turn it around tomorrow at the CL. Hey, guys, one quick note, and then we'll dive into our interview. Uh, Gamecocks actually did pick up a commitment over the weekend. Preferred walk-on running back, Chase McCracken. And, yes, guys, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Another running back. I, I don't know. Listen, I trust in Shane Beamer. Um, you know, he's going to make the right decisions, make the right moves. How many running backs do we have now, like 20? I, I, I don't know. You got to think some guys are getting moved to wide receiver or something. I mean, I understand you can't have enough good players at that position or good players in general, but, my God, it feels like everybody we're signing is a running back. Um, also, guys, there is a lot of rumor and speculation right now in regards to who will be the next Gamecocks tight ends coach, okay? And let me say this. Let me just say this. Before you freak out about who Shane Beamer hires as his tight ends coach, let me just inject this perspective really quickly. I have never gone on social media or read the local newspaper for you old heads out there, but I have never looked at the recap of a game. I've never gone on a show and credited or blamed the tight ends coach specifically for the result of the ball game. So, you know... <laughs> We're all passionate. We all want to see the best possible people join the staff and join Shane. But trust in Shane or what, what he does, guys. Because what if we go eight and four this upcoming season, it ain't going to be because we had an elite tight ends coach, my guy. I mean, you need a bunch of good coaches around you, but let Shane work. Trust him. Guys, he took a ragtag roster and won seven games and won a bowl game in year one. Let him work. Let him do his thing. Even if he didn't get the guy you thought he should have, just let him do his thing. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Uh, all right, guys. Hey, we're going to dive in this interview. Blake Cooper. What a legendary convo from February of 2019, guys. Great throwback conversation, throwback interview. Got a couple of new, unique interviews lined up this week. By the way, guys, just in case you were wondering, but again, it's really crazy. The library of content we have in regards to these old interviews and these conversations. We're talking about, I mean, the best to ever take the field the best to ever take the court, the best to ever do it and wear Garnet in black. So again, guys, a great combo. And it's brought to you by our friends, by the way. Did you see the new home field drop over the weekend and our new sponsor, Home Field? Guys, Home Field, at this point, you know, but they are a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis. Incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs. Guys, Home Field is kicking off big new Saturday season three where they launch a new school on their site every Saturday for eight weeks straight. And, of course, as you saw over the weekend, South Carolina is week three. Guys, they launched the collection this past Saturday on February the 5th. Homefield also digs through the archives and history of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for your school. Again, guys, they launched the collection over the weekend. Awesome stuff. Incredible. I've got mine, and it's it's. It's so awesome. The South Carolina collection, guys, as you saw, has 13 pieces in the collection, including T-shirts, hoodies, and crewnecks, and they're all vintage marks. Again, guys, I posted mine on social media over the weekend. Incredible. The quality, the designs, the logos. Guys, logos and designs you haven't seen 
in God knows how long. So again, be sure to check them out, guys. You can use the promo code Spurs up at checkout to get 15% off your first purchase from Homefield at homefieldapparel.com. So again, guys, I know a lot of you checked out the site, said, man, my wallet's going to be hurting. We're here to help. 15% off using that promo code Spurs up at checkout at homefieldapparel.com. And again, we appreciate the fine folks over at Homefield for partnering up with the Spurs Up show. Guys, going to appreciate you all tuning in. Let's have one kick-ass week, shall we? Hey, appreciate it. I'm done. I'm out of here. You guys have a fantastic Monday and enjoy this conversation with former Gamecocks right-handed pitcher, Blake Cooper. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up show is a man that played for Gamecocks baseball from 2007 to 2010, was part of the Gamecocks 2010 National Championship team, uh, was named to the Collegiate Baseball third-team All-American squad in 2010, also garnered first-team All-SEC honors that year. I'm pleased to welcome to the show Blake Cooper. Blake, appreciate you taking the time, and again, it's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you on the show and look forward to talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to start from kind of the beginning. You played uh, at Edisto High School um, from that area. I just want to kind of ask you, what was the recruiting process like for you and what eventually led you to uh, become a Gamecock? Well, actually, I, uh, like I said, I played at a small 2A high school in uh, Cordova, which is near Orangeburg, South Carolina. I uh, <clears throat> I was on varsity my, my eighth grade year and then yeah, my, my, I got a little bit of time as an eighth grader, played mostly JV, and then got called up there to playoff times and uh, got to play some shortstop and got to pitch actually against Batesburg Leesville in a playoff game in my eighth grade year. But then from there on out, I was on the varsity team and really uh, made my way as a starting pitcher. I actually threw a no-hitter my freshman year um, against Wagner Sally at a like a pre preseason invitational tournament. So, um, so as far as recruiting goes, I, you know, I, for me coming from a small town, I, re- I really had no intentions of, of playing, you know, big time college baseball, um, cause I really didn't know anybody that did. And, you know, for me, it, that really didn't grow until I came around my junior summer where I got an opportunity to play a guy by the name of Roger Wilkinson, who ran a travel ball organization out of Georgia. Uh, which is actually Scouts USA now, but um, I played with him, and you know my head coach was actually Tommy Dunbar, who uh, recently passed away back in 2012 or 13, which is really one of my big mentors, and um, yeah, it was an awesome experience for me because it was really the first time where I got to play against guys who were super talented, and I got to learn a lot. So um, my recruiting process really didn't start until that summer. I actually got recruited by those guys. Um, we were playing actually at Silver Bluff High School, and they were there to watch a kid by the name of Demetrius Washington. We actually got drafted out of high school. Ended up going to play at uh, Middle Georgia for a couple of years, but he, he was a extremely talented outfielder, like a four-two down the line, you know, right-handed hitter, and also three eighty-eight, ninety on the mound. So I kind of just just shined that night and got the opportunity to play uh, summer ball with. Awesome. Absolutely. So moving into 2007, your freshman year, you were someone that I would say 
adjusted very quickly and very well to the college game, especially pitching at the SEC level. You went seven and two overall, four four eight ERA. Um, got a ton of work. I mean, over sixty innings pitched. Named a collegiate baseball's freshman All American team. Um, talk about just what made the transition, you know, smooth for you. Because obviously, it always is a transition when you go from high school ball to collegiate ball, especially when you're talking the SEC level. Um, what do you think gave you the ability to have so much success early on in your career? Yeah, you know, for me, I was always a guy who who threw a lot of strikes. He could throw three pitches for strikes. Um, and then later on in my career, my my junior and senior year in high school, some velocity came around. So early on in my career, I was a guy who learned how to pitch. And then, you know, really as my career developed, I, you know, I jumped six to seven miles an hour within that year, and I was able to use it. But um, so as far as for me transferring into into college baseball, especially at the SEC level, my freshman fall did not go, um, you know, as planned. I believe I had around a 19 ERA um, going into the spring, and I can remember I had a meeting with Coach Tanner, and you know, I was starting to wonder whether you know I was good enough to be at that level. Um, so I felt like every time out, I was, you know, I was giving up three and four runs and walking guys, and it was just something that you know I didn't really do coming out of high school. I was trying to be somebody else, and you know, we all know as an athlete, if we 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 start doing things that we're not capable of doing, we try start trying to be somebody else, and you know, oftentimes it, it puts yourself in a bad position for you to be successful. So, you know, I, I sit down with Coach Tanner, and he starts talking about, you know, may, maybe it's an option to transfer. You know, you come out in the spring, and we'll see how it works out. You pitch well out of the pen first in the spring inner squads, and we'll see how it works going into the season. So, and he brought up a story about a guy by the name of Kip Fultonike, who you know, obviously he he became a Gamecock legend. So he uh, he, he was a guy who, who had kind of the same result as a freshman um, in, his, in his first year in South Carolina. So he brought up the motivation for Kip Fortnite to me that, you know, he, Coach Tanner really believed in me and he thought it could be done, but there were some things I need to change. So it's one thing facing, you know, two A high school hitters to, to going in and facing – Reese Havens, James Darnell, Justin Smoke, all those guys, Travis Jones as a freshman, you know, at Star Price. So um, it, it was a very tough transition for me, especially early in my career. Um, but I also had coaches like Coach Tanner and Mark Calvin who pushed me every day to, to try to get better at perfecting my craft. So from there on out, I was able to make some adjustments and go into that freshman year. Um, I believe I threw eight innings out of the bullpen. Um, we got my first start on Friday night. I believe it was against Brown University. Our Friday guy, Harris Honeycutt, went went down with um, – he had a shoulder, shoulder tightness. So, I got an opportunity to play. And um, I went out and made the start. Got, a, got my first career win against Brown. So, that was a special, special deal for me. Right, no doubt. So you talked about some of your uh, your former teammates, Justin Smoke, Reese Haven, James Darnell. I got to ask, what was it like facing those guys every single day? Because I, and we all know, you know, we all know what guys like Justin Smoke did and have done and are doing at the professional level. We all know what Reese Havens did, James Darnell. I mean, these are these are first couple of round draft picks. Talk about what it was like facing those guys, because I know that had to be murderer's row for uh, the pitching staff at South Carolina. 
Well, it was. And, you know, as far as uh, when you're a pitcher and you're a young guy, you know, you get, you get put on a certain side of the spectrum to where, you know, they want you to face the better hitter. So they want you to get better. So every day, every time I'm out, I'm facing those guys. And, you know, obviously, like I said, they're first rounders. And, you know, honestly, I'm glad they were there because it made me better. Um, because a lot of times, you know, as humans, we're stubborn to to change until we're defeated, and then, and then all of a sudden we've got to make a change because we're forced to do it. But I really feel like those guys really broke me into that because I was a guy who kind of cruised through high school, had a really good arm, had a good breaking ball um, that was able to, you know, just, just kind of cruise through high school because in high school you, you kind of got one or two good hitters, but when I, once I got to South Carolina, I was facing nine guys who could really hurt you. So they really forced me to make adjustments and be able to turn into the pitcher. Right. So you talked a little bit earlier about Ray Tanner and your conversations with him. Just talk about sort of your relationship, because we all know he's a Hall of Fame coach, what he did at South Carolina. Uh, talk about specifically your relationship with, uh, with Ray Tanner then and now. Well, Coach Tanner was – he was really hard on me from day one. Um, and, I, and I think Coach Tanner did a really good job of that. He he really knew the guys that he could get on, and he knew the guys that he kind of had to pat on the butt and say good job. So, and I feel like I was one of those guys that that could handle it. And I think it, it, it's just kind of based off where I come from and the work ethic I had. Um, but I, looking back then, I kind of thought, you know, every day, like, why is you know why is Coach Tanner on me? And you know, he, I think that's that's one of those things where if a guy's on you all the time, that means he really cares. So, um, but yeah, he, he's definitely been a mentor for me, especially off the field. Um, he's definitely led me in some the right directions to actually get the job I've got now. So um, I really appreciate everything he's done for me so far. For sure. No doubt. So uh, you're someone that pitched against Clemson many different times across your career. We know the South Carolina Clemson baseball rivalry is I would say is the best in the country. Talk about your experience overall, uh, your memories from the South Carolina Clemson rivalry. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's second to none, I think. You know, I've I played baseball around the country. And, you know, for some reason, the state of South Carolina has a tremendous amount of respect for college baseball and college athletes, just because there's, there's not really a professional team here. So, um, it, it's really, it's really a special deal. Um, I can remember my freshman year getting off the bus for going to Clemson. Um, we're number one in the country. They're number two in the country. And, you know, at the moment you get off the bus and it's like, man, you know, I'm here. This is, this is what it's all about. We get off that bus and, you know, there's fans lined up in, in left field and we're walking pretty much through a tunnel of fans, probably a hundred yards long. And, uh, start understanding what that rivalry is about really quick if you're not familiar with it. Um, but it, it's definitely a special special rivalry. Um, and for me, that's, that's really what I miss the most about it, is the rivalry, you know, the, the, the pressure that was put on it, um, and, and just the goosebumps you get out of it. No doubt. Is there any specific game or series with them that you remember? Because I know during the time that you played, obviously we're going to get to 2010 and what you guys did in Omaha, but I remember specifically the uh, 
the Harley Lale clip throwing up the four to the outfield. I remember specifically the yeah. the Justin Smoke clip where he gets thrown at a little close inside and then hits a, a ball that I think probably still hasn't landed yeah. yet over the right field fence. I mean, those that's, things are pretty uh, heated with you guys. That's actually uh, – that guy's name was Vaughn. Um, he, he wore number 22, I believe. I can't remember his first name, but I know him and Smokey were like best friends. Hmm. So if you did, if you didn't know that and you watch that clip, you think they hated each other, but they were like best friends. And I can remember that guy. He, he came in on Smokey and almost hit him, and then uh, obviously we know what the rest is history. So, but yeah, I, I can remember a start I made there. Um, I can remember Chris Epps led off the game. I went first pitch fastball away, hits it in the stand for a home run, and then obviously you hear the Clemson Tiger chant, um, which is the most obnoxious thing in the world, by the way. <laughs> Um, no doubt. And then Nick Schaus, Nick Schaus comes up, and I throw a first pitch change up. And I can remember like it was yesterday, he hits it pretty much on that, you know, in right field where they've got all the grills and everything right there in right. He hits it over the fence for another home run. So right there, I've thrown two pitches, and it's two to nothing, Clemson. And that is the loudest I've heard as a pitcher. Um, but right then and there, it was a situation where, you know, for me, and I think Coach Calvi and you know Coach Tanner did a really good job of getting us to be able to live in the present moment. And that was a situation. That was either my freshman or sophomore year, to where you know all fall and spring, that's all they talked about was being in the present moment, being in the present moment. So what? Next pitch. All those things. And right there in that moment, I can remember telling myself, "Next pitch, next pitch." And all of a sudden, I look up. You know, we're in the sixth inning, and we're up by one. So. They lead that game off, home run, home run. I cruise through five or six, and then I win that game. So, um, you know, I, it's one of those things now as a coach that I talk about all the time, being in the present moment, understanding the situation and moving on. Because if you, if you look back at what happened, you're never going to see the future. So it, it's one of those things that, you know, I really didn't understand how Coach Tanner – did what he did, but he was amazing at it. No doubt. So I, I want to talk about you're one of the few guys that can say they were on the team that, <clears throat> excuse me, that closed out Sarge Fry Field and opened up Founders Park. Um, just talk about kind of how cool that was, because I remember specifically when they were talking about building a new ballpark. Uh, me personally, I was thinking yeah. Sarge Fry is great. I love Sarge. You know, I know all the South Carolina fans love Sarge Fry Field, and then you actually see Founders Park and what it is, and it's immaculate facility. Uh, just talk about what that was like as a player to go from Sarge Fry Field to uh, breaking in Founders Park. Yeah, it was uh, – you know, I, I honestly, I really liked Sarge Fry Field. You know, I thought that, that, that the, obviously it was it was an older stadium and it, there was a new one needed to be built. But there was always a ton of fans there, and it just felt like there was always more fans than what was actually there. Um but it was a really unique situation to where it was a really it was a college atmosphere. You had tailgating, you know, on the right, on first base side, on top in the parking lot. It, it was just a really good experience for fans and, you know, the players. And, you know, I, I actually started the last game there. Um, so it, it was against University of Tennessee. And, you know, I, that was a game that Reese Havens actually walked off. So, um that was really an unbelievable year, honestly, for, for me and 
know, I, I really enjoyed the two years that I got to play there because I got to play there at Sark Pride, which, you know, had a tremendous amount of tradition. And also got to play with some guys who played in the big leagues with Justin Smoke and, you know, obviously Darnell and some guys like like the names of uh, Disher and, and Havens and those guys. So um, it, it was a really special place for me. No doubt. So 2009, you were named the NCAA Regional All-Tournament team. Uh, we talked to your buddy Scott Wingo a couple weeks ago about this, but you guys go to East Carolina and – suffered what I would categorize as a brutal, just a brutal loss in the regional series. A couple of really close games, you know, a couple of games lost on the last at bat. Um, we all know what happened in 2010, but for the team and for you specifically, what do you think changed from 2009 to 2010? Because during your career, I mean, you were always solid. I mean, you know, your overall record, 7-2, and 5-6, and 9-4, and four, ERA hovering, you know, somewhere around four. But we, your senior year, 2010, you go 13-2, and two, with a 2.76 ERA. Going into 2010 from a team perspective, was the national championship something on you guys' mind? Was that the goal to get to Omaha and win it all? And then for you specifically, I mean, what changed overall for your game to have the type of senior season you had? Well, you know, I think you go to South Carolina to win a national championship. I think that's the, that's the standard that the players set before. Um, that's the tradition of University of South Carolina. I think that yeah, that's something we always thought about. But, you know, that East Carolina region, that's something that, that really stung. I think I started a game and I went, you know, eight innings or so and gave up 14 hits, which is rare. I don't understand how I ever did that. But I can promise you that Wingo probably had a had a say in some of those double play balls I, that, uh, that were induced because I'm sure it was basically loaded almost every inning in that game. But, anyway, he, you know, it, that, that game – really left a dagger because we knew we were a talented team. Um, we just weren't able to make a pitch or get a hit when we needed it. Um, and, and I think the biggest thing for that next year, moving in, moving forward from the end of that season, going from that, that season to that summer to that next year was, you know, we, we were challenged. We were challenged by our coaches. We were challenged by Coach Tanner. Wingo was challenged by Tanner. I, I, I'm sure he talked about it. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, we're going to bring in another guy if you can't get it done. So, mm. and the same thing was to be said for me. I, you know, I was a guy that kind of just was just average for, you know, three years. I had a really good start as a freshman and, you know, I'm the Sunday guy for three years. But, you know, for Coach Calvi, he was, you know, he was constantly on me about, man, we need, we need you to be more. We need, we need to do some things that's going to make you a, a better pitcher. We need you to win 10 games or more. We need you to be a leader next year. So, Coach Calvi, you know, I really take – I give credit to, to Coach Calvi for really getting me <laughs> to where I was that senior year because you know, I can remember walking off the field um, that last time and, you know, we were walking up to the locker room and Coach Calvi stops me and he says, hey, Coop, you know, you had a good three years, but there's something that's got to change or something missing. Um, and for me, I was a little bit overweight. Um, I felt like, you know, once I got to the fourth and fifth inning, I, you know, I would get tired and, you know, I'd really lose my sharpness on every pitch. I'd fall behind guys and really lose the velo. So, you know, he came to me and said, Hey, you know, we need to change your body. We need to do some things to, to make some adjustments. And, you know, that summer I put a, I, I was on a mission. And, you know, he came to me and said, hey, I'll be here every day if you need 
David, we got to get you better. So really made a commitment to to baseball off the field, made a commitment to my body, made a commitment to my team. Um, and I went out and, you know, I, could, I can remember myself running stadiums every day. I'm in the weight room two hours a day. I lost 30 pounds. Um, you know, I'm at, I was sitting at 215, and all of a sudden I'm down to 185, 188. And I feel like a new guy getting into that that fall that next year, and guys are looking at me like, who's the new guy in the room? So <laughs> it, it, was, it was just a different mindset. And as an athlete, I think that, you know, the mind really enables the body to do things. So for me, it was – I put my mind to it. I changed my lifestyle. I changed my body. I changed my mentality. I changed my focus. And all of a sudden, it puts you in a position to be successful. So pretty much, I just, you know, I changed that process of the way I went about things. And when you do that, all of a sudden, the results and success changes. So that's one of the things I think that really helped me push forward. Um, and there, there wasn't one time where I went out and pitched and didn't think that I was going to beat that other guy. So <laughs> if you can look back and you can see the guys that were on, you know, that Friday night, you, you're talking about Drew Smiley, you're talking about Sonny Gray, you're talking about Drew Pomerantz, you're talking about, I mean, just a ton of guys that, you know, for me, and, and one thing Coach Calvi always drilled in me, you're not pitching against that other pitcher, you're pitching against yourself. So... I started believing that, and I started controlling the things I could control, and all of a sudden, things started taking care of themselves. For sure, and Blake, you kind of led me to my next question, because I want to talk about 2010. Again, you earned first-team All-FCC honors, uh, third-team collegiate baseball American squad, and again, we all know you guys won the national championship, but I talked about your stats, the 13-2, and 2.76 ERA, but like you mentioned, uh, you were pitching on Friday night, and Friday night in the SEC is obviously when the big dogs come out. It's when the scouts all come out. The the best arms are throwing on Friday night. I remember specifically, actually, I was at the 2010 Ole Miss game when you pitched against Drew Pomerantz. I remember specifically. Um, and like you're saying, you faced the best of the best, the best arms, um, and beat those guys. It, Talk about just, was there, I, I, you know, you already kind of explained it, but what was that like kind of going, you, you know, you talked about you're facing yourself, but you're facing these aces for every single team and you're beating them week after week after week. Just talk about what that experience was like. And, um, you know, did you carry just sort of a chip on your shoulder? I mean, what was that experience like for you? Because again, like you said, you went from your first three years being a middle of the road average Sunday guy to a frontline Friday night SEC guy. Just talk about what that was like, just beating those guys up week after week. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I had definitely a chip on my shoulder. I was always a smaller guy in the room um, that didn't throw as hard as everybody else. And, you know, even though I was, you know, I usually sit 88 and 90 and, you know, I could throw three or four pitches for strikes. But, you know, I wasn't the prototypical professional guy. Um, but I took pride in, in my craft and the things I can control. Um, and I think that, you know, for me it was – situation where I just I I trusted my process of events that was going to lead me to success and that's what I kept going out and doing and, and I think when you're so encapsulated in the things you can control and the things that you do on that mound or with you and that catcher it's it, never any pressure and that's something that 
you know, I kind of try to relate to our pitchers, you know, on our pitching staff is, you know, when you can start thinking about that one pitch routine, you can start thinking about the things you can control. You start thinking about your tempo, your delivery, you know, all those things. There's no, there's no time in there to think about pressure and who's in the box, who's on the base path, who's in the other dugout, what coach you're playing against. All those things are irrelevant whenever you're focused on, you know, the, the things that you control. So I definitely had a, had a um, chip on my shoulder mindset. For me, it, it was something that I wanted to prove to everybody, especially, you know, where I came from and some of the, you know, obviously you're going to have people that say you're not going to do it, you're not going to be good enough. But for me, I took pride into to proving others wrong. And, you know, I went out and did it for me. So it was – um and, and not to mention the guys that we had behind us. It's unbelievable. I mean, you had Bobby Haney who who made six errors the entire year, and I think five of them were throwing errors. So if the ball's hit those guys, they're going to catch them. And – that's something that, that I had trust in. I had faith. I mean, Scott Wingo was the best defender in college baseball his entire career at South Carolina. So it's unbelievable the amount of talent that was in that field as far as defensively. There was never a thought in my mind that I had to strike a guy out. For me, it was all about, you know, going out, putting the ball in play, letting those guys play. And I believed in that process. And, you know, when you believe in something, it's going to work. There's any indecisiveness in your thought process, and you're gonna run into some issues. So, you know, we we definitely had a, a group of guys that were talented, but they also were guys who really cared about the game. They really cared about the university. They had a passion about what they did, and you know, obviously, it, it showed in the play. No doubt. And you talk about your process, and I feel like that really all came to a head. You were you were impressive in the postseason, but that that really all came to a head. Game one against UCLA in the College World Series, um, you spent an absolute gem. Through eight-plus innings, allowed just one run, three hits, ten strikeouts. And, oh, by the way, on the other side, UCLA is throwing Garrett Cole, who, if anyone you're listening, you know baseball, you know what Garrett Cole is doing right now, a man in the MLB that's making a ton of money spending the baseball. Um, I mean, just talk about for you, again, you talked about all year you're beating these top-notch guys, you know, week after week after week. But you go up again against UCLA with two top-notch arms in Garrett Cole and Trevor Bauer. And, again, you spin an absolute gem. Just talk about what that was like getting the win, um, or I guess first pitching in the College World Series, but secondly getting the win over UCLA and setting you guys up to uh, eventually win the national championship. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I take it back to the, to the Coastal Super Regional. Um, I think that, you know, Coastal that year was probably the best offense we faced all year. Um, and I can remember going over to scouting report. And I remember Coach Calvi talking about, you know, they were 27-0 and or whatever it was in conference, but they played in the Big South and they weren't that good. And, you know, obviously he's trying to make me feel good about it. But um, you, you had guys like Tommy Lestella. You had Taylor Motter, who's in the big leagues. You had Rico Noel, who's been in the big leagues. You, you got two or three pitchers that's been in the big leagues that I played with actually in Arizona. So they had a lineup that can really do some damage. Um, they had two guys who had over 60 total stolen bags. Um, so they were definitely a lineup that that really could hurt you if you let them. So <laughs> I can 
can go. I can remember going back to that game, and you know we get in a situation where it's I think his base is loaded. There's a ball hit up the middle. You got Scott Wingo again. It hits off my glove. It goes right over the bag. Scott lays out backhand. He's laying on the ground. Throws the ball to first for a double play. So that was another situation where Wingo just came through. And like I said, he, he's the best defender I've played with in college and through pro ball. And, you know, obviously I've played in the AAA level. So he's one of the best. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely. You know, once Walker hit that walk-off home run, it was like, you know, we got Matt Price coming in, the game's over. So, just all the pieces we had. We had two guys with over 10 wins. We had a submarine guy who's appearance leader in history. We had a closer on the mound who threw 96. We had guys in the field who can defend. We had some guys who can hit the ball out of the park. So, we had all the, the entire recipe to be successful. Um but yeah, as soon as Walker hit that home run, we knew it. Um, and it, it's an unbelievable feeling getting on that bus, knowing you're going to Omaha. Quick question: Do you think that ball has landed yet that Walker hit? Because I know that was a mean <laughs> shot. Well, I actually played with that guy too. His name was Austin Fleet. <laughs> um, he, uh, he actually, actually, I didn't play. I played against him. He was with San Francisco. But he, I remember he threw a. It was a slider. He hung, and Walker hit it out. But. <laughs> Once again, I was in another situation where Coach Tanner was unbelievably – he told Morales he gets on, this guy gets on, Walker's going to hit a blast. And it's unbelievable just the things that he would say that would happen. And it, it happened. And we get, we get on the bus, we're going to Omaha. And I can remember before that series, we, we had a meeting out in center field, and Coach Tanner said, why not us? You know, why not us? And obviously we win two games, we go to Omaha. But back to your, you know, your question about – you know, UCLA and Garrett Cole. Honestly, I had no idea who Garrett Cole was. That was – that's another situation where, you know, you're so focused and locked in on the things that you do and that you can control that, you, that you're not worried about the opponent. You're worried about the things you do best and the moments you're trying to stay in. So, and not only that is, you know, for our offense, it was about we, – we'd face guys like that all year. So, it wasn't – you know, we'd face Sonny Gray, we'd face Paul Rance, we'd face those guys. So it, it was just like another Friday night in the SEC. No doubt. So I want to get your opinion really quickly because 2010 was the same year that uh, one of the members of the pitching staff you were on, Michael Roth, gets his first career start. And we all know what he did against Clemson. Spins an absolute gem when most were expecting him to go maybe two, three innings. He throws a complete game. Um, I mean, how cool was that? Because I know as a pitching staff, you guys – you sort of all own each other's success and you compete against each other. But from your perspective, I mean, did you ever expect that in your life for Michael Roth to go out there and throw a complete game? I mean, what was that like just watching from the dugout? Well, I can remember, you know, we're talking about Roth starting because what happened, we lost that first game. And then, you know, obviously we had to play Arizona State. Dyson pitched that game. And then I had to come around and pitch against Oklahoma again. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're sitting there against Clemson. And, you know, I can remember Coach Tanner just saying, hey, just give us two and we'll move on. Just give us two and we'll move on. He goes out there and he carves and, you know, everybody's looking around like, I ain't saying anything to him. I'm not saying anything to him. And it's all of a sudden it's the sixth and he's still dealing. And you know, I see Coach Tanner and Coach Calvi talking about it. And Coach Calvi's like, leave him alone. So, you know, we're, I can see them. They're, they're walking in ways to avoid Michael on the bench. 
And, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, come on, just hold on, just hold on for a couple more, just hold on for – and he throws a complete game. And, you know, that was one thing about that team was when a guy went down, another guy stepped up and they were ready to go. It was unbelievable how things happened. And the camaraderie between the guys and just the way that, you know, everybody worked together and everybody cheered for each other. It was, it was really a special team. No doubt. So we talked a little bit about the Carolina-Clemson rivalry already, but how awesome was it to beat Clemson twice in Omaha? Because we all know the history of what happened in 2002. Literally the exact same thing happened, and you guys do it again. I'm sure you heard a lot. We talked a little bit again to Scott Wingo about this, but I'm sure you guys sort of heard the whispers of history repeating itself, you guys beating them twice in Omaha. But, I mean, how cool was that and satisfying was that to do it again? Yeah, it's definitely special. Um, earlier in that year, I mean, they really – they gave us a butt whooping early in the year. Um, I think they beat us by 18 runs or so <laughs> during that year and took two out of three from us. So, it was definitely – that was a team we wanted to play. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of things on the line, and I thought we played better whenever we had our backs against the wall. Um, it was a situation where our guys always rose. You know, and before that game, you know, Clemson was always a team that played with a lot of energy. Um, there was a lot of excitement around their program. But for some reason, during those two games, there was something different about them. And I think that the fact that they were playing South Carolina kind of took out some of their balloon, some of their air from their balloon in that aspect. And I think that's really what propelled us past Clemson. No doubt. So, you know, we already talked about you get the game one win over UCLA. Uh, we all know what happens game two with Merrifield, the walk-off hit. You guys win the national championship. The first ever baseball, collegiate baseball national championship in the history of South Carolina. Um, and you go out on top as a senior. That was your final collegiate game. Explain to us just how cool of a feeling that was and just what that moment was like as soon as that ball's hit in the right field and you guys are the national champions. Well, it's the best of both worlds because what happens is earlier in that series, uh, or actually, you know, obviously against Oklahoma where we're down to one strike, you know, your mind is thinking, you know what, boys, it's been a great ride. <laughs> um, and it's amazing what the game of baseball does because you're sitting there, and I can remember saying, hey, guys, let's pull our pants up. Let's create a rally here. And all of a sudden we're back in it and we win the game. And then you get to – the UCLA series and win the first game. Um, and then you move on to that second game and you're one swing away. We got a guy on second base. Wick comes up. He gets that hit. And it it's like you're running out and it's really loud, but you don't hear anything because you're so, you're so excited and you're in that moment that it's really a undescribable moment. Um, it, it, it sounds like just a bunch of bees in your ears is what it sounds like. But you're so excited for the guys on the field and the guys in that dugout and all the hard work you've put in, you know, for some guys four years and for some guys that are, you know, new to that team and moving forward all the way through the spring. So it's really something that, you know, I'm proud about moving forward with, you know, all the new guys that are coming in now. So it's um, it was really special to be able to, to create that tradition there. 
No doubt, absolutely. Uh, so the 2010 MLB draft, you're taken in the 12th round by the Arizona Diamondbacks. Your your career, uh, you played from 2010 to 2015, like you mentioned, all the way from the rookie ball level up to AAA. I mean, you've been all over the place. Went 23 and 20 overall in your minor league career. When you work back, over 315 innings pitched, by the way. So a ton, a ton of innings, a ton of experience at that level. But when you look back on your your professional career. Uh, what are the biggest things you take away from it? You know, I think obviously I had, I had a tremendous career. Um, I got to meet a ton of people and, you know, I got to go a lot of places. So, and at the end of the day, you know, I went out of college on top. I got to win a national championship. I got to play at my dream school. I got to make lifetime buddies um, at the university. I got my degree from there in 2016. So, you know, I, owe everything to the University of South Carolina to, to where I'm at today. But going back to pro ball, I, you know, for me it was, you know, I always said I'll play until, you know, the opposing bats tell me I'm not good enough. Um, but for me, I, I never really got to that point. Honestly, I just got to the point to where I felt like it was time and I felt like for me it was I got more excitement about instilling knowledge and, and seeing other guys do well in, in the game that I loved as a kid. So I knew it was time for me. I was ready to start a family. I was ready to, to move somewhere and settle down. So, you know, for me, I'm extremely happy that I, that I did what I did. I got to play professional baseball because it was a childhood dream of mine. Um, and, and I got to see the world. So that's the biggest thing that, that professional sports or any athletic um, team will do for you. you. You get to see things, you get to do things, you get to meet people that, that you might not otherwise. Yeah, I want to ask, Blake, how, how close were you, would you say, in your opinion, to pitching at the MLB level? Because, I mean, you jumped around from double-A, triple-A, double-A, triple-A, back and forth. I mean, was there ever a time where you were thinking, you know, I'm about to get the call to the MLB club? I mean, how close was that realistically for you? Well, I mean – in 2014, I was, you know, first called up to AAA and, you know, going back to you know, some of the things I was talking about earlier, I tried to do things that were out of my control and things that, you know, I wasn't very good at doing. And, you know, I struggled a little bit. Um, started walking some guys and then finally I got sat down with Mike Bell, who was the minor league coordinator and said, hey, man, you got to get back to doing what you do best. And, you know, I started doing those things. I started pitching well and got traded over to the Cubs. Um, sitting down at double A, finished there as their closer for about three weeks. And then next year, I went in the spring training with the Cubs and got, you know, sent up to triple A and probably had the best year of my career there. Um, I was either setting up or closing every game. You know, I get to the end of the season, and, you know, unfortunately, it just, it just didn't work out. But, you know, I would say that, um, you know, for me, it was, I was extremely close. You know, I thought that, you know, my stuff played. Um, it was just a decision for me that, you know, I was a guy that was going to probably be up and down. Um, I didn't know if I'd stick or not. And I didn't, I didn't really think that lifestyle was for me. I was ready to get into coaching. I was ready to have a family. So that was a decision I had to make. And for me, fortunately enough, you know, as an athlete, it, it's one of those things where, you get the best of both worlds. You go out on top of the national champion, and then you get to choose when you retire from baseball. So um, 
not a lot of guys get to have that option. No doubt. So like you said, you're in the coaching ranks now. Um, you leave minor league baseball in 2015, get your degree from the University of South Carolina, kind of bounce around from being a GA at South Carolina to now you are the pitching coach at the Citadel. You talked about a little bit earlier. Um, just talk about what the transition's been like from playing on the field to being a pitching coach and, uh, you know, what it's been overall being a coach. No, it's been awesome. It's been everything I've, you know, I've wanted. Um, like I said, I, I get excitement out of seeing guys do well <clears throat> and seeing guys, you know, really buy into what you're talking about and what you're coaching and, you know, some of the experiences I've seen and, and had as a player. So, you know, it, some things you take for granted, um, being at the level I was at, I think that's one thing I learned last year as my first year coaching was the things that I took for granted, the, the, the way guys prepare, the way guys, they, they take a professional approach in throwing, the way they, they they control their bullpens, the way they, you know, control the game within the game, their emotions, their one-pitch routines, all those things that I took for granted um, that I did as a player that I had to learn. I kind of took for granted that these guys would do that as well. Um, so that was one thing for me my first year I really had to learn and adapt to and start getting these guys to really understand what it takes to be successful and focus on that process instead. Um, but for me, it's it's all about the relationships. And, you know, it's awesome. You know, I, I only got to coach some of those seniors one year last year, but, you know, I still have some relationships with them. And it, it's, you know, for me, the relationships are the best thing in the world about coaching. Is your goal to be a uh, collegiate head baseball coach one day? Is that kind of the end game for you or just kind of the goal for you? Or what's uh, what's the goal for, for Blake Cooper coaching-wise? Well, I think right now, obviously, it's, you know, it, it's to have a pitching staff that's really competitive and win games at the Citadel. So, um, you know, obviously every, every assistant coach wants to be a head coach. But right now, like I've been talking about, is that it's <laughs> – it's that process and being where your feet are. So right now my my main focus is to get these guys better where we're at. Absolutely. So, Blake, appreciate you giving us the time. Before I let you go, I have one last question. Um, obviously, you played with a ton of a ton of great dudes at South Carolina. I know the 2010 team, you guys had a had – you were very businesslike on the field, but you guys were, let's just be honest, a bunch of goofballs. Could be a bunch of goofballs all together. What's your best story that you can tell in the airwaves uh, that you remember from South Carolina, maybe your favorite story – uh, whether it be on or off the field at South Carolina? Um, I, I, w I would have to say I'll, – I'll give you a baseball story. We, we're in the national championship, and I like to pick on Scott Wingo because he's always a guy when, you know, Coach Tanner, you know, he, he, gave, he gave Wingo a hard time too. But, you know, I think that's, that's one of those things, like I said earlier, where – you know, if he's picking on you, that means he really likes you and thinks you can do well and be successful. So we get out there and, you know, Coach Calvi comes out. Wingo makes two errors in a row right there in the inning. And he comes out and, you know, when he's like, eh. and Coach Calvi's like, come on, Wingo, what you doing? And, and Wingo's like, yeah, yeah, I got, I got it, I got it, I got it. He, he always did that. It didn't matter what. What you, what he did or what anybody said, he was always quick to say, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it.